Philip Yancey in his book entitled Disappointment with God tells a story about his interaction with a young man named Richard. Richard called him out of the blue and uh, asked him to read a manuscript he had written on the book of Job. And if you've read Job in the Old Testament, it's about a man who was, he was blameless before God, but he experienced incredible loss. Nevertheless, he didn't curse God. He walked with God all his days. And so Richard sent him this manuscript, and Philip Yancey read it. He liked it. Uh, he actually wrote a foreword for the book that was crafted out of that manuscript sometime later. But about six months after he had written that foreword, uh, Richard called him up. He'd never actually met him in person. He said, hey, I need to come see you. I need to tell you something. And uh, Richard came and came to his house and sat down. And he just blurted out, you need to know, I hate God. He said, actually, that's not true. I don't even believe in God anymore. And he, over the next three hours, just told his story. Uh, he had come, come to Christ in college, began walking with Christ. Uh, but while he was in college, his parents' uh, marriage was in trouble. And so he just poured out his heart night and day to God to save his, his parents' marriage. And uh, he actually dropped out of college and moved home to try to salvage his family. And when his parents got divorced, that was his first experience devastating experience with unanswered prayer. He went on to describe how other people talked about, God spoke to me, God showed me this, but he never experienced that. He would pray and pray about guidance, but it seemed like every decision he made was the wrong decision. It just turned out disastrous. Uh, after college, the job that he had been promised was given to someone else who was less deserving. Uh, his fiance broke off their engagement with no explanation. She just said, I'm done. Uh, he had health problems, physical problems that only made his spiritual and emotional problems worse. And so that was just his life. And then when he looked at the broader world, things were no better. Uh, he was just, he saw missionaries who were killed in plane crashes on their way to their field, children starving. And so he finally got to this place. It was just this crisis of faith, faith where he, he said, you know, I've just got to decide if this, the whole thing with God is going to work out. So he dedicated this one night. He said, I'm going to seek God one last time. I'm going to give him this chance to prove that he's really real. And so he prayed for four hours. He started at midnight that night. He prayed for four hours. God, if you're real, show me. And after four hours, something, something broke. And he just said, God, I'm done. I'm going to give up on you. I'm just going to live my life. And so he actually took his Bible and his other Christian books. He gathered them up. He walked down the stairs of his apartment complex. He went out back to the brick fire pit. He threw them all in the pit, squirted lighter fluid on the pile of books, and lit a match. And he abandoned his relationship with God. He's done. You and I know people like Richard who've had this crisis of faith, these accumulated disappointments with God come to this crisis of faith. I've known people who've gotten to that place, a few people who have come back to faith in God. I've known other people who have abandoned God altogether and basically concluded, I don't believe there is a personal God who actually cares about my life. 
I've known other people who have kept the label Christian, but they've come to the place where they so protect themselves and they so insulate themselves. They don't really pray anymore. I'm never going to put myself in a place where I can be disappointed by God again. They keep the label Christian, but they basically live their lives the way they want. The Bible encourages us to do the exact opposite of what I've been describing. The Bible would encourage us, and there's many scriptures that say this, you should persevere, you should endure, you should walk by faith until the very end of your life. Ideally, all of us would be able to say what Paul said at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. So today we're going to consider a passage that encourages us, pleads with us to persevere. And before we look at this passage, I would just say to to you, I would say to myself, we would be foolish. We would be absolutely foolish if we did not have a healthy fear of not persevering. If we didn't have in our lives someplace this healthy fear saying, I am afraid that I won't finish well. And the things that challenge and threaten our faith and our perseverance vary from person to person. For you, it may be the problem of evil. You may wonder, how can a good God really allow so many horrible things to happen? For you, it may be some specific sin that, quite honestly, is much more appealing than denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, and following Christ. For you, it could be the threat of persecution or even scaled back the threat of rejection by other people because you're a Christian. That was actually the the scenario for the original recipients of the book of Hebrews. They were Jewish Christians. Uh, They were being persecuted. There was a threat of more persecution, and so it would have been much easier just to abandon this, this faith in Jesus and go back to living under the law. And so we need to anticipate, we need to be prepared spiritually, emotionally, mentally, intellectually, so that we will persevere when the challenges come. As it's been said, you need to weave the parachute before you jump out of the plane, okay? You need to be prepared long before you have a crisis of faith. If that's when you start preparing, it may not be. It may not be soon enough. And so today's passage really provides an invaluable perspective that could be the difference between persevering and giving up. You're not going to find a formula here today, but you're going to find a perspective if you will pay attention to it, if you will believe it, if you will live it out, could make the difference between giving up and persevering. And so the past several weeks, we've been studying Jesus' present ministry. We've been looking at the connections that are made in the Bible between Jesus being seated at the right hand of God and our discipleship. What are the implications for him being seated at the right hand of God for our praying? What are the implications for the spiritual warfare? What are the implications today we're going to ask for our persecution? And so we're looking at Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. In verse 1, we see the challenge to persevere. And this verse begins with the word, therefore, indicating that he's drawing a conclusion from what's been written in chapter 11. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also, just like them, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race set before us. 
And so the cloud of witnesses surrounding us is a reference to the people mentioned in Hebrews 11. These are the people who, who lived by faith. And if you, read, if you haven't read Hebrews 11 lately, I'd encourage you to do it because you'll find people that uh, there were some amazing people there, but they failed in some spectacular ways. They, 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 they uh, committed some world-class sins, okay? But the one thing they had in common is that they all persevered. They all believed that God exists and he's the rewarder of those who seek him. And so they all finished their life with this faith in the God of Israel. Abraham, for example, he's a, a witness is somebody who can give you firsthand account. They're not, it's not hearsay. Oh, I've heard that this is true. But no, they could say firsthand, this is true about God. Abraham, for example, he could say, it's possible to wait 25 years for God to fulfill a promise he made. It's possible. It's, it's worth it. Moses would tell us that it is possible to fear God more than a king. It's possible to fear God more than somebody who could take you out at the snap of his fingers. And so these, this vast number of people, this great cloud of witnesses can tell us it's possible and it's worth it to live by faith. And so if we are willing, we can hear this great cloud of witnesses telling us this same thing. If we pay attention to scripture, and I would argue there are also people probably in this room as well that could tell you it is worth it to walk by God and it's possible to, to walk by faith with God. But, and this is important to acknowledge, uh, you may very well have other voices, other witnesses in your head, in your soul that are louder than the voices in Hebrews chapter 11. You may have a voice from your childhood that basically says, you know, you can walk by faith, that's fine but you're not enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not competent enough. You're not consistent enough. You have flashes of brilliance, but eventually you're going to be a failure. And you need to be aware if that's the dominant witness in your life. Uh, One of the men who mentored me during and after college was a man named Dave Simmons. And by pretty much anybody's standards, he was successful. He played pro football for the Dallas Cowboys, the then St. Louis Cardinals, and, and the New Orleans Saints. He was very accomplished as an author and as a speaker. And yet to his dying day, Dave had a hard time not believing that he was a failure. Why? Because his dad's nickname for him as a kid was Stoop. It was short for Stupid. And to his dying day, he thought he had a hard time not believing that he was stupid and he was not enough. He was a failure. And so we need to be aware of, of what, what witness we're, living to, living, we're listening to. Like Dave, every one of us needs to be, be sure we're listening to the great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, the author tells us, let us also, just like they did, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us so we can run with endurance the race set before us. And so an encumbrance isn't necessarily a sin, but it's something that slows you down. It's hard to run if, you have, if you're wearing heavy clothing and you've got your pockets full of rocks. And so anything that's slowing you down, you have to be honest. Is there anything I'm doing, spending my time or my money on? It may be okay in an absolute sense, but it's slowing me down. 
The author says, lay that aside. And then he says, the sin which so easily entangles us. And, and scholars debate what that is. Is that apostasy? Is it some other sin? I tend to think ultimately he's warning against apostasy, but that sin could be anything, any sin. And you've got to know yourself. What is it that trips you up? You've got to be honest about this. It's, it so easily entangles us. And so sin is analogous to vines and undergrowth that would entangle someone running through the woods. And of course, we don't deal with our sin in any absolute sense. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has done that. Uh, He has made the once for all sacrifice for sin. And so he has paid for that. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him alone, you don't have to fear the penalty of sin. Uh, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What you need to pay attention to is the power of sin. Uh, Even though this power has been broken, broken, am I allowing sin, some sin, to have this power in my life that it shouldn't have, that slows me down and demoralizes me and and drains away the life uh, that, that Jesus gives me? The author talked about this in Hebrews 3. I want us to look at this, this passage very briefly in Hebrews 3, 12, and 13. And there the author says, Take care, brothers and sisters, that there not be in any one of you. So he's talking about the whole community. Let there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you, He didn't want any of them so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you look at the end, if you start at verse 13 and work backwards, you'll see a progression. Uh, It starts with sin. It talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives us. It deceives us about ourselves. It deceives us about God, about a relationship with God. The deceitfulness of sin can lead to hardening. Instead of having a soft heart and you're open to what God wants, you're hardened in your heart, and a hardened heart can lead to unbelief. And so the antidote, if you don't want to be deceived by sin and hardened and enter up in unbelief, the antidote is to encourage one another day after day. And so this is a daily thing. I love that you're sitting here today, sitting in in, in a room with other Christians once a week is not enough. The pattern is day after day. I was thinking about this, and I know a lot of people, uh, college students, I know, a lot of co- I know a lot of people, contemporaries of mine, that peaked spiritually in college. And I think this is one reason why, is because like when I came to Christ in college, I lived in the dorm, I would have conversations, hour-long conversations almost every day about the Bible. Hey, you want to have an all-night prayer meeting? Sure. I don't have class till 7 in the morning. I've got nothing to do. And we just had this, this, this life in community. You graduate, you move away, you're isolated, and you go to church once a week. It is not the same thing. You need to be encouraged day after day. The antidote is to live in community. And so every one of us, myself included, you need at least a few people who absolutely know you. They know the sins that so easily entangle you. They know your encumbrances. And you've given them permission. You say, hey, and you don't give this to anybody, by the way. Don't give this, per- this permission to a mean person or a judgmental person. You want somebody who's full of grace and truth. You say, you have the green light. If you see sin, uh, hardness of heart, unbelief, deceit, you see any of this in my life, you've got the green light. I want to know about it. That's the antidote in, in keeping 
letting sin not entangle us. Back to Hebrews 12. So we lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us by trusting in Jesus alone, crying out to Jesus in times of temptation, and then living a transparent life before at least a few others. And notice the connection in this verse. We lay aside these sins and encumbrances so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. The NIV translates that, the race marked out for us. In other words, you don't mark out your own race. The implication is that you have been given a race to run. Now, you and I make decisions that affect our race in dramatic ways. But the fact of the matter is, you have very little or no control over much of the race you're running. You were born into a family you did not choose. You were, you were raised in a family. You were raised thinking certain things. You had no choice over that. You were given a body and a mind and a temperament that has certain strengths and certain limitations. Uh, you've been given assignments by God. A uh, person didn't believe in God would say, by life. You've been given assignments, hard assignments that other people don't have. You've experienced hardships that, that other people have not had to face. You've got heartaches that, that many, many people don't have. And at one time or another, uh, almost all of us, I have, have said, I wish I were living somebody else's life. I wish I were running somebody else's race. But I would ask you, have you made peace with the fact that your life is the only life you can live? Your race is the only race you can run. Have you made peace with the fact that God will give you the grace you need to run your race with endurance? And what, what he, the author writes in verses 2 and 3 helps us make peace with that, that fact that sometimes the race will be hard. And here we see the connection between Jesus' present ministry and our perseverance. And so he talks about the focus of our perseverance here. And as we run with endurance, we not only listen to the cloud of witnesses surrounding us, uh, we also fix our attention on Jesus, the one who perfectly, perfectly ran the race that was set before him. And so he writes this, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And whatever you fix your eyes on, that's what your focus, that's the, that's the focus of your life. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so let me just uh, make some very obvious obvious comments here. Uh, since discipleship means following Jesus, discipleship means following Jesus. If you are not looking at Jesus, you will not be able to follow him. And so if you fix your eyes on yourself or you fix your eyes on other people or you fix your eyes on hypocritical Christians or you fix your eyes on all the horrible things that are happening in this world, as important as it is to notice those, if that is the focus of your life, you can be a spiritual person, you can be a religious person, you may even be a moral person, but if you do not fix your eyes on Jesus, you will not follow him. In other words, you will not be a disciple. 
And so we fix our eyes on Jesus. That means that we, we think deeply about who he is and what he did. Instead of just glancing at the scriptures or, glance, oh, look, Jesus, good to see you. And then going on with our life. No, we, we dwell. We let the words of Christ dwell richly within us. We abide in him. We let his words abide in us. And so we have spiritual conversations. Again, it shouldn't quit in college. This is spiritual conversations every week of our lives. Why should we do that? Because he is the author and perfecter of faith. The word author has a connotation of a pioneer. He blazed the trail, we follow along. So it's not like, oh good, Jesus ran the race. No, he ran the race, therefore I can run the race. He's the perfecter of faith. He gave faith its fullest, most mature expression. So if you want to learn how to run the race from the person who ran the race better than anybody else, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of faith. The race set before Jesus was a sinless life, live a sinless life, demonstrate what it means to live in God's kingdom, die on the cross as our substitute. And our author says about Jesus' endurance, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice three details here. First of all, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And so he looked past the cross. He said, yes, this is my assignment. This is a cup I have to drink. But he looked past the cross to the joy of being being raised from the dead and then seated at the right hand of God. And so he had joy in the midst of suffering. Second, it says Jesus despised the shame. And understand, there was nothing more shameful in the Roman Empire than being crucified. And the Romans tried to, to magnify the shame of the crucifixion. For starters, they, put, they crucified people on a, outside the, the city limits on top of a hill uh, in a very prominent place. They would strip you naked before they put you on the cross. And then they weren't able to do this with Jesus, but typically they would leave your body on the cross so that you would be eaten by birds. You wouldn't even have a proper burial. What the author tells us here is that Jesus despised the shame associated with the cross. And when you despise something, you look down on it. You say, that is not worthy to dominate my life. What the world calls shame, the shame of the cross, that is not the dominant influence in my life. I despise that shame because I'm looking past the cross and what God wants me to do. He did, Jesus did not view the shame of the cross as the most powerful force in the universe. It was unworthy to distract him from walking with God. And if you and I want to run the race with endurance, as hard as it is, we have to do that with shame. Every one of us experience shame in different ways. And shame is just this overwhelming sense, not just that I, I've done bad things. I am bad. I am guilty. I am unworthy. I'm not enough. But if we want to learn, we want to walk with endurance, we need to learn from Jesus how to despise the shame, look down on the shame. Instead of exalting it and saying, this shame is the dominant thing in my life. This defines who I am and how I live. We say, no, I'm going to despise that shame. I am in Christ. I am as alive to God as Jesus himself. And so we despise the shame. 
So for the joy set before him, he despised the, the shame of the cross. The third detail we're told is that he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And this was the plan all along. He would be raised from the dead and he would be seated at the right hand of God. The fact that he's seated means that, that his work is finished. Uh, the, the high priest in the old covenant never sat in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And he's seated at the right hand of God. That's a place of power and authority and honor. And so he is now experiencing the joy that was set before him while on earth. And Jesus' experience confirms that God can be trusted to deliver what he promised. What we're told throughout the New Testament is that whatever happened to Jesus will happen to those who are in Christ. We've died with him. We've been buried with him. We've been raised to newness of life. One day, even our bodies will be raised immortal, never to die again. And one day, we are, we are now uh, spiritually raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly place. We're told we will reign with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. And so the fact that Jesus is exalted to God's right hand, it guarantees that those who are in Christ will be exalted as well. And so the fact that Jesus is seated as God's right hand should give us confidence that we too can live by faith throughout this life. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And the other thing, the other fact that, that Jesus is seated at God's right hand, it should remind us that as our great high priest, he will give us, if we let him, he will give us everything we need to persevere. We saw a few weeks ago back in chapter 4 that since Jesus became one of us and he, he experienced our weaknesses, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, he is uniquely qualified to give us the grace and the mercy at just the right time. And so his present ministry should not only be an example, it should be this, this, this powerful confidence, give us powerful confidence that he will, will come through for us. In verse 3, the author points out that fixing our eyes on Jesus puts the race we're running into perspective. He says, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is the great temptation in this life, growing weary and losing heart. And the heart is the command and control center of the Christian life. And so when you lose heart, you're no longer living from the heart. You're no longer living from this deep place. This is who I am in Christ. This is what I've been called to do. So this is how I'm going to live my life. When you lose heart, I don't know if you've, you've probably experienced this. You get up in the morning, you go for your first cup of coffee. And before you even take the first sip, oh, gosh, can I do this one more day? Can I live this life? And people that lose heart, end up faking it, end up going through the motions. Some people give up altogether, but a lot of people just, just gut it out. They're no longer living this life, this exciting uh, anticipatory life that Jesus calls us to. And they're just going through the motions, no longer running the race. And so the author tells us, uh, consider how Jesus endured such hostility by sinners against himself. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, we see that he ran with endurance, even though he experienced betrayal, injustice, and ridicule. And I don't know if you ever thought about this, but wherever Jesus was, he was always 
the smartest person in the room. He was always the most locked in on the will of God. While people were spouting all their, he absolutely knew the will of God, and he endured it. And so the message here is not, uh, suck it up, don't be a wimp. Jesus lived his life well. No, the message here is, Jesus ran with endurance the race set before him. You can too, because he's the author and perfecter of faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus, and he will teach you how to endure the way that he endured. And so, you know, we live this life, and, and as I said, different things will, will tempt us to, to not persevere. Uh, but one of the things is, is that we, we get locked in on questions that we don't have answers to. And there are many things we don't know. But one of the things, one of the, the most insidious things that happen is that we have all these things we don't know, but we let those things obscure us from what obscure what we do know. And what we do know, and this is what we dare not let go of, is that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. And if we let him, he will teach us how to run the race with endurance. And so today we're going, to, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and I would encourage you, just bring this passage, bring yourself before God, and, let, and, and consider this grid. As we come to the Lord's table, the, the bread represents the body of Christ, and if you need the allergen-free bread, you'll find it in the middle. It re- represents his body, the cup represents his blood. And so come and bring yourself before God, and remember, he ran the race perfectly. Jesus, how, how can I learn from you how to run the race that is set? before me? How do I negotiate all these things in my life that I wish were not here, but it's part of my assignment? God, are there any encumbrances, things that aren't necessarily sinful, but I just need to let go of them to create time, space, energy to know you? Or God, what are the sins that are just just slowing me down and zapping the life out of me? And so bring yourself before God. If you are a follower of Christ, we would love it for you to to join us at the Lord's table. Hold the bread until we've all received. And then as an expression of our unity, we will eat together and hold the cup. And then we'll drink together. With those who are going to serve, come forward while I pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that during this time that that you might search us and try us. Show us what's in our hearts. We pray, God, that we would understand the things that slow us down, the things that, that uh, clutter our lives and keep us from walking with you faithfully. God, we pray that we would fix our eyes on Jesus here, uh, not just for once a week, but God is just a pattern of our lives. Show us how delightful it is, how good it is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.